This is the Breaker.News podcast for the week of January 28th, 2024. I'm Bob Mackin, publisher of the Breaker.News and host of the Breaker.News podcast. Welcome to edition number 327. The Breaker is your source for news, opinion, and analysis about British Columbia issues, institutions, and influencers. Later, I'll tell you how you can support the Breaker. On this edition, headlines from the Pacific Rim and the Pacific Northwest. I award a virtual Nanaimo bar to a difference maker. And on the big deal feature, one year into British Columbia's hard drug decriminalization experiment, a record death toll from the fentanyl overdose emergency. A clinical psychologist with Simon Fraser University's Center for Applied Research in Mental Health and Addiction was my guest this time last year, and he predicted it would get worse. I welcome back Dr. Julian Summers to find out what needs to be done to save lives. This is the Big Deal feature on the Breaker.News podcast. Close to 14,000 people have died as a result of drug toxicity in BC since this public health emergency was declared in April of 2016. And they've left holes in our lives, our families, and our communities. They are loved and they are missed. That is the voice of British Columbia's outgoing chief coroner, Lisa Lapointe, on January 24th. British Columbia lost 2,511 lives to drug toxicity in 2023, continuing the tragic death trend we've experienced over the past 10 years. The majority of deaths occurred amongst those aged 30 to 59, and males account for about three quarters of those who have died. British Columbia's drug toxicity public health emergency declared in April 2016 is a direct result of the arrival of illicit fentanyl to the province's unregulated drug market. Since that time, illicitly manufactured fentanyl has continued to be the main driver of our province's toxic drug crisis. Since April 2016, 13,794 people in our province have died. There have been more than 40,000 deaths from opioid toxicity across the country in that period. In British Columbia, drug toxicity is now, and has been for many months, the leading cause of death amongst those aged 10 to 59. A record year for deaths from toxic drug overdoses in the province, 5% more than 2022, at a rate of almost 7 per day. 2023, January 31st to be exact, was also the start of a three-year experiment in BC. For the time being, adults are no longer arrested for possessing 2.5 grams or less of hard drugs, including cocaine, heroin, meth, and fentanyl. My guest on this podcast is Simon Fraser University's Dr. Julian Summers, clinical psychologist with the Center for Applied Research in Mental Health and Addiction. Dr. Julian Summers joined me this time last year when I asked him if decriminalization of hard drugs would have any positive impact. Dr. Summers, you said that decriminalization on its own would not help. Uh, you, you endured uh, a criticism for that, and here we are almost exactly a year later. Your prediction has unfortunately come true. It only got worse. More is the tragedy that the evidence that I was referring to was really not considered or even welcome um, for consideration by people in the provincial government. And that's that's both, you know, the the permanent government, so what we, you know, the public service, 
and the elected officials. They're they're you know working together very closely now for a number of years on our current policy direction, but they're working in isolation. And as we said a year ago, if we looked at other jurisdictions, even those that had made similar steps to us, like Oregon, California, especially some California cities, um, had had decided even a year ago the, the way that they had gone about trying to improve things through changing drug possession laws was counterproductive. And, uh, and so even in the face of that evidence, there was, uh, um, and we see even today with the coroner's announcement, you know, she's, she's expressing her dismay, but she's really only pointing uh, to the potential remedy in her mind of increasing the delivery of pharmaceutical drugs as a way of trying to separate people from purchasing illicit drugs or purchasing drugs from illicit sources and instead getting them from the government, basically by taxpayers, which is not only a very poor idea in terms of what we could be doing, but there's no reason to believe that it's actually going to make things better. So some more numbers that uh, came out of the report for 2023 that uh, Three quarters of the victims were male. Seven out of 10 were aged between 30 and 59 years of age. And there's also an eerie historical symmetry. In 2023, fentanyl was involved in all but 14.7% of toxic drug overdose deaths in BC. Just a decade ago in 2013, fentanyl was involved in only 14.7% of the deaths. It, it, we also had in 2023 the BC government under pressure, the BC NDP government under pressure from the opposition parties and the public to do something about uh, drug use in public places. And uh, we saw that end up in the courts and the Chief Justice of the BC Supreme Court paused the law, which was called the BC Restricting Public Consumption of Legal Substances Act, uh, that would have that would have allowed police to to uh, seize uh, drugs from people in parks, near schools, near playgrounds. But uh, the, the Chief Justice said it would have caused irreparable harm to addicts. Uh, so that law is on hold. What do you think of, of, of what the courts did to intervene there? I read the decision. I read the decision a couple of times. Um, and and I, I'll, I'd say that it... it um, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense in the same way that the recommendation to decriminalize possession didn't make sense one year ago on its own. It does make sense if we interpret it in, in the context of what um, the BC government has been promoting as their explanation for what the problem is and how to address it. So the the judge in his decision refers to the fact that BC only has, I think he quoted 47 uh, drug consumption, supervised consumption sites, and that more are needed. So that, that kind of statement makes sense if you're listening to the BC government and advocates for consumption sites. It makes no sense whatsoever if you look at countries like Switzerland and Portugal and others that successfully reversed major drug poisoning epidemics with no consumption sites, zero. Portugal between 2000 and 2010, when they made all of their major, basically transformation of street drug use, infectious disease transmission, crime, homelessness, they made what is regarded as the most dramatic international turnaround yet 
zero consumption sites. It's not an argument against consumption sites. The point is they recognize that consumption sites signal that you've got people who are unhoused or inadequately housed in your communities. And if you really want to deal with street drug use, you've got to get people inside. You've got to, not more than inside, you've got to get them actually into homes that can serve as a base for work. I'm going to go back here for a second, Bob, to you know the stats that the chief that the coroner cited. It's conspicuous, I think, to readers like myself, what she doesn't report. She does not report the proportion of people that were homeless or living in substandard housing, where they're basically exposed to drugs and drug uh, selling all the time. She did not discuss the proportion who are, are unemployed. We know, thanks to Stats Canada, which has linked mortalities in BC and poisonings, non-fatal poisonings and fatal poisonings to um, income. We know that more than two thirds of the people who were dying earned no money and basically are dependent on income assistance while they're living rough and before they die. So there's no mention of, of that finding or of the overlap with um, other mental illnesses apart from addiction. And by the way, there's no mention of the fact that Although what you said regarding the shift in the proportion of deaths linked to fentanyl is absolutely correct, when we look at who's dying in the toxicology reports, it is almost never fentanyl on its own. It's fentanyl plus benzodiazepines, plus methamphetamine or other amphetamines, and it's and and it's this it's this combination of drugs. Fentanyl is legitimately I I, I think referred to as cause of death, but the fact that people who are dying are polysubstance users as a norm tells us something important about what their challenges are. I'm listing things, all of which are uh, things we can address, things we know how to address. Long-term homelessness, living in squalor, unemployment. We're losing people on average, I, be I believe the age rate age is still in their 30s. Drugs have now become the leading cause of death among British Columbians 10 to 19. We've got a foster care problem that feeds directly into this. And if the chief coroner was really serious about using evidence to prevent new people from entering high risk, she'd begin listing some of these things that are not about the toxic drug supply, but about the conditions that our members of our population are forced to live in and that we could improve, by the way, for about the same amount of money <laughs> as it costs to send people repeatedly into hospital, repeatedly into jail, providing income assistance as a primary source of survival. You know, all of those things have been shown to be addressable. And those really, when she refers to root causes, those are the root causes. Her, her sole recommendation, the drum that she and other members of the government keep beating, is this pharmaceutical drum. We've got to introduce that. That, even if it worked, and uh, that's another discussion perhaps, it doesn't work, but even if it did, it's basically waiting until people have entered a, a state of crisis, have left whatever home community they were in and have migrated, which we've shown is what happens, and found their way to a source of prescription drugs or dispensed drugs that is sufficiently attractive that they would prefer that over the illicit source. So we're, in other words, it's doing nothing to prevent new cases. And we need urgently to make preventing new cases a fixation in BC.
Yeah, and part of this uh, campaign that that she really waves the flag on is uh, safe supply. We've we've uh, heard it from so many different uh, corners. Uh, there was also the the drug users liberation front last year in 2023. We learned that uh, they they got two hundred thousand dollars from Vancouver Coastal Health to buy to help buy hard drugs. Uh, they were later raided raided by police. Um, what, what what does that tell you about what is going on on the ground? Well, there's a um, a long uh, relationship. Uh, Dolph is relatively new, but there's a long relationship between a, a I think an important partner of Dolph, uh, the Vancouver Area Network Drug Users Van Do, and the uh, HIV AIDS Center at St. Paul's. Um, our former provincial health officer, Perry Kendall, his deputy, um, Mark Tyndall, all of whom were uh, infectious disease, uh, either specialists or focused on, on their attention on the, on the AIDS crisis. Uh, there's uh, Dr. Martin Schechter, the scientific director of Michael Smith Foundation, which is our primary provincial health research funder. And the BCCSU formed from the HIV AIDS Center for Excellence, which was partnered with Bandu and other groups um, in their work addressing AIDS. So now we have those groups plus uh, an entity on the island, AVI, that's short for AIDS Vancouver Island. And they, all, they have longstanding partnerships and they've worked together to create uh, the, you know, this advocacy and really they introduced what we know as so-called safe supply. And if you look it up on Health Canada's website, it's very clear this is a, 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 a form of practice that is intended to attract people who are not currently receiving care. So they're alienated from a, you know, a caregiver treatment relationship. And um, so it sets a very low bar. They're, uh, again, on Health Canada's website, the terms that are used are, are, are flexible eligibility requirements, flexible goals, uh, flexible numbers of medications, and um, flexible in terms of whether they would be provided to a person to then take away. And of course, here in BC, uh, where we we that's that's very much what we do. In fact, we're providing drugs to people from vending machines. Um, now, an unfortunate, from my perspective, a very unfortunate uh, component of of this activity is that several of the companies that are active. So, for instance, the vending machine company, or uh, one of the opioid companies, those were formed by the very health leaders I named. So Mark Tyndall, the former deputy PHO, owns the vending machine company. Mark, uh, um, Martin Schechter and Perry Kendall form the, an opioid company and, and continue to market it as, as so-called a source of safe supply. Bonnie Henry, in her report, uh, making the case for decriminalizing possession, says that, um, in fact, a preferred approach would be legalization of drugs. Um, but she goes on to say that even these steps, this is a, you know prior to a year ago, these steps that BC is taking are poised to make BC an international leader in uh, addressing uh, problems of, of addiction. I, I mean, no one, I, I assure you, I talk to people internationally, no one is looking to BC as an example of what to do. They're studying us to understand what not to do. So there was this very uh, strong sense of certainty 
among people in leadership roles that advancing a, a, a long-term legalization agenda, but also developing companies that would help advance this uh, safe supply agenda was somehow a good idea and that there wasn't really, that it was so likely to succeed that there was really no thought given to the potential impropriety or appearance of conflicts of interest, which unfortunately is now something that we're gonna have to look into because those commitments, the fact that we're in this position now is, is partly due to those interests being served at the expense of considering alternative strategies that actually have far more evidence to support their likely effectiveness. So there's an opportunity cost that we have to get our heads around. The closest uh, experiment to British Columbia is Oregon, which had a bit of a head start. Uh, in fact, this week, Democratic lawmakers there, they tabled a bill to uh, recriminalize small amounts of drugs to allow police to seize them, to make it easier to get people to, to get help, um, access treatment. They, 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 they want to uh, bring back uh, jail sentences of maybe 30 days, fines of about $1,250. Um, but there would be the incentive for the person who was caught to enter a treatment program. And if they successfully complete that program, uh, well, then there's no jail sentence, no fine. And this all stems from the 2020 vote by uh, Oregon voters. 58% of them voted to decriminalize. And what they were going to do was uh, move money from the, the cannabis tax revenue uh, into addiction treatment. Hasn't succeeded there either. That uh, The deaths there continue to, to, to pile up and uh, urban decay continues. The international evidence um, is is markedly at odds with what we're doing in BC. Even the the, the largest um, uh, autopsy on the opioid crisis, the most the most comprehensive one, what is was completed by the Stanford Lancet Commission, and they covered the the genesis of the opioid crisis in Canada and the U.S. And they talked about you know it's about something like thirty five pages of. Uh, analysis and recommendations of things that we could be doing much better, more, more effective things. They mentioned two things that governments should not do. They, they use the word governments should be skeptical, particularly of two things. One is introducing a pharmaceutical supply of drugs in the hope of displacing the illicit supply. And the second is providing drugs to people from vending machines. So as I said earlier, we're doing those two things and not a lot else at the marquee level. All We basically committed ourselves to the wrong end of the stick. Um, we're looking at the immediate, like the proximate cause of death, the drug that kills the person. We're ignoring the fact that they're living in squalor. We're ignoring the fact that they're calling out for help with ev for everything from housing, employment, food security, help getting off drugs or help keeping themselves safer. And we're ignoring all of those things. And, and But unfortunately, it's addressing those things that is exactly what results in helping people and reducing crime. And that's been shown in BC very clearly through the, the, the drug treatment courts that operates, our downtown community courts, and also through voluntary interventions when we had the opportunity to offer housing and support to 500 people deemed hardest to house in the downtown east side. They had on average eight prior convictions themselves. We basically got them sort of between offenses. But the point is, 
All of these interventions involve the same things. They involve redirecting people and supporting them to lives in healthier settings with healthier foci that they choose. People want to be better, but, it, but we are starved for actual opportunities, and it's not for want of spending. The amount of money we spend keeping people homeless has been shown since 2007 to be about 55,000 bucks per person per year in BC. That original study has been replicated twice since in terms of the amount. So what we're really up against are entrenched financial interests that are so far unwilling and appear very unlikely to change on their own. Any insight on what you might see coming down the road in the next 12 months? I don't see any reason to um, um, expect improvement. Um, we're spending more. We've been spending more each each year, especially since, um, well, in the last two years or three years, we've been spending more incrementally each year. The, thing, the things we're spending on pharmaceuticals and hospital beds, um, buildings where people are congregated together with consumption sites, those have been shown empirically not to result in meaningful change. So it's more than sort of like a, a theoretical prediction. The evidence indicates that that's not the way to get out of this crisis. So unfortunately, I believe that the government has committed itself to a, a, a path that it is very difficult to get itself out of. Whether this issue is enough to uh, make a real difference in the election, provincial election, I, I honestly don't know, because unfortunately, there are many issues weighing on voters' minds. But, but of course, you know, to me, this is a huge one. We also have the risk of vote splitting on the, um, the center right of the, agenda, of the, of the political spectrum. So, so there's that, too. But honestly, I, the, the most likely um, um, opportunity for change, I think, is at the ballot box. Well, thanks very much. Pleasure, Bob. Great talking to you. That was my guest, Dr. Julian Summers of Simon Fraser University. He's a clinical psychologist with the Center for Applied Research in Mental Health and Addiction. Now it's time on the Breaker.News podcast for Around the Rim. We look at news headlines around the Pacific Rim. In the Taiwan News. Taiwan develops domestic AI tool to defend against China's online infiltration. The project follows news of the Chinese chatbot program ErnieBot, which was developed by Baidu and made available to the public in 2023. Taiwan could spend more than half a billion U.S. dollars through 2026 to develop expertise and programs related to AI research. With the rise in popularity of applications like TikTok among young people, the Taiwan government has grown increasingly concerned over the possibility of Chinese disinformation and propaganda. In Kyoto News, police question man believed to be 1970s bombing fugitive. The man, believed to be Satoshi Kishima, is wanted for his suspected involvement in a bombing that rocked the capital in 1975. He was questioned at a hospital in Kanagawa Prefecture, investigative sources said. Kishima, who would be 70 now, was a member of the radical leftist group East Asia Anti-Japan Armed Front. In Hong Kong Free Press, Hong Kong government-authorized trash bags go on sale. Authorities vow to combat fakes. The bags will come in nine different sizes, ranging from 3 liters to 100 liters, with each liter costing 11 Hong Kong cents. 
They will be made available for purchase from 4,000 supermarkets, convenience stores, post office, vending machines, and online. The scheme requires Hong Kongers to purchase government-authorized bags to dispose of their rubbish or risk a 1500 Hong Kong dollar fine. It aims to encourage the public to throw away less. That's Around the Rim on this edition of the Breaker.News podcast. News podcast for Cascadia Calling. We look at news headlines around the Pacific Northwest. In the Oregonian, eggs raised or sold in Oregon and Washington must now be cage-free. Commercial farms with 3,000 or more chickens must give their birds room to move around. Oregon and Washington join a handful of other states that have passed similar laws. California and Massachusetts already have cage-free laws in place, and more states... Utah, Colorado, Rhode Island, Nevada, Arizona, and Michigan have passed laws that will go into effect in the coming years. When Oregon's law was passed in 2019, the Humane Society said the move would improve the well-being of some 4 million hens in the state. In King 5, activists react to City of Seattle settlement with 2020 protesters. The City of Seattle agreed to a $10 million settlement with about 50 protesters who said police used overly aggressive tactics in 2020. Plaintiffs say they were injured during the George Floyd murder protests. The city is not admitting to wrongdoing. City attorney Ann Davison said the settlement was the best financial decision for the city rather than going to trial. Activist Larry Gossett led Seattle civil rights protests starting in the 1960s and went on to be a long-serving King County Council member. He thinks the settlement is a one-step in the right direction of upholding the right to safely protest. In the Times Colonist, Disgraced Victoria mortgage broker Greg Martell's Las Vegas home to be sold for $5.1 million U.S. Receiver Price Waterhouse anticipates more than 1,300 investors could be tied up in Martell's scheme, which it estimates involves nearly $300 million. Martell's current whereabouts are unknown to the receiver, though PwC says it learned he had been exiled from Thailand after August 30th, at which point he traveled to Dubai. Warrants for Martell's arrest have been issued in Canada and the U.S. That's Cascadia calling on this edition of the Breaker.News podcast. Spruce Hill Contracting. Every week we end the Breaker.News podcast on a tasty note by awarding the goodness of a virtual Nanamo bar to people making a difference. A virtual version of the province's favorite dessert bar goes this week to parents, grandparents, guardians, those that take time out to read a story to a child or take them to a library. January 28th is the end of Family Literacy Week in British Columbia, but every day is a good day to help a child learn to read. You can nominate someone for a virtual Dynamo bar. Send me an email to bob at thebreaker.news. Spruce Hill Contracting, custom homes and renovations. Find more information at sprucehill.ca. That's it for the Breaker.News podcast for the week of January 28th, 2024. I'm Bob Mackin. Thanks for joining me. Did you know that on the 28th of January in 1965, the Royal Proclamation that made it official, Canada's new red and white maple leaf flag designed by George Stanley. Now you know.
Send me your feedback. Send me your story ideas to bob at thebreaker.news. Bookmark thebreaker.news. You can also find us at thebreaker.ca. Sign up for the email newsletter and get updates to your inbox. Or follow The Breaker News as news happens on X, formerly known as Twitter. And you can support The Breaker for as little as $2 a month. For more information, go to patreon.com slash thebreakernews. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thebreakernews. Until next week.